0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We got a really a, a strong, lengthy interview here with Paul McGinley. I uh, want to give a shout out to our partner, BMW. They are a global partner of the Ryder Cup. They do so much to uh, support our content. We've been working very closely with them uh, over the past you know, re- year, working on a bunch of Ryder Cup themed episodes. Of course, the Ryder Cup getting postponed until next year has kind of put a delay on some of that stuff, but uh, this is episode one of, you know, looking into some stories about the Ryder Cup, and I really wanted to dig in deep with Paul McGinley on being a captain uh, specifically, and uh, all the nuances of that, and really asked him to spend some time opening up on some specific examples, and I think the detail you're going to get out of this is, it's, it's unlike anything I've heard, at least to a, you know, All the things that he did with the individual players when he was captain in 2014 kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I think you guys are going to enjoy it as well. Also, before we get rolling, uh, I just learned this. This is is officially Old Fashioned Week. Uh, If you want to mix a great Old Fashioned, you should be reaching for a bottle of Elijah Craig's Small Batch Bourbon. It has a rich flavor and full body is perfect for mixing this classic whiskey cocktail. Just need a little bit of sugar to enhance the sweetness and some bitters to bring out a little bit of spice. I'm learning this as well. Old fashions date back to the 1880s. Uh, used to be considered a morning cocktail. I'm not necessarily suggesting that you start your day with it, but uh, you could start your day in worse ways. Uh, you can garnish it with an orange swath or a brandied cherry. And For more information on how to master the old-fashioned, visit Elijah Craig and discover the greatness within. No Laying Up is brought to you by Elijah Craig Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Bardstown, Kentucky, 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Here's Paul McGinley. From what I understand, you live in Sunningdale. Is it safe to assume that's where you play your golf? Yeah,
1: it is. Fortunate there. Uh, they made me an honorary member up the road there. I, I can actually probably hit a nine iron into, into the practice ground in uh, in Sunningdale from where I live. And yeah, fortunate place to be. I'm kind of right in between, if you picture anybody who's been to the UK, the, the, the ninth green in Wentworth and... The first tee in Sunningdale, and I'm right in the middle of those two. Probably between the two, you probably for somebody like Dustin Johnson, it will be a drive and a wedge, and I'm kind mm-hmm. of in the middle.
0: What is it about that area that is that is so appealing to a golfer? From what I gathered from the little bit that you and I talked when we were at Lahinch last year, uh, you do seem like a, bi- a bit of a golf course nut. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I've got very feeling, strong feelings towards golf courses, architecture, the history of it what a golf course should be. And basically, I, you know, obviously grew up in Ireland. I married an English girl. We got married in 1996. All of my traveling at that stage had to go through Heathrow uh, because uh, Dublin was a small airport and everything was a connection. And that took a lot out of me, you know, getting, getting the half six flight in the morning to get in, to catch a flight, to go to Spain or wherever the case may be. And, uh, you know, after about a year or so, we decided to buy a small house uh, as a base in London. Then they've elevated into, you know, a bigger house, and then another one, and here we are, still here, kind of uh, twenty, what, twenty-three years later.
0: Kind of run us through in the Surrey area what your uh, your your favorite stops are. Or if you had, you know, ten rounds to distribute, I'm kind of putting you on the spot with that one. How would you divide up? Uh, how hmm. you'd choose to play your golf in that area?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this is an oasis here of golf courses, there's no doubt. It's a little bit like the sand belt is down in Australia, Chris, for for people who might be familiar with that. Um, You know, it's a very well-drained soil around here. Uh, A lot of it is sand mixture of sand and clay in there and it drains really well Heathland they call it so it's uh, sometimes it plays like a Lynx golf course Or I mean you can get run down the middle of Sunningdale in the summertime you can get a run 150 yards sometimes down the fairway Um, and even in the winter time it drains really well and and Wentworth is maybe not as dry as that but it's still quite dry Um, so you put Wentworth on there Swindley Forest which is an old gem of a golf course Harry Colt design. That's a really cute golf course. Very few people get to play that, but that's something special. Wapleston is another one. I mean, Harry Colt. Some of the old great designers. Um, you know, they, they 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 put their eye and the creative eye around a lot of the golf courses in the area, and uh, mixed in with that heather and heathland and trees, uh, these golf courses have really evolved into in some great tests of golf. And obviously, my favorite is Sunningdale. I also played a, a new course designed a few years ago called uh, well, designed twenty years ago now uh, called Queenwood which is much more American style private club, but, that's only a few miles up the road as well. But no, Sunnydale will be my favorite. It's old, it's authentic. It's got two golf courses, uh, the old and the new. Uh, there's only six months between them. Even both of them are over 100 years old. The famous one is the old one, but my personal favorite uh, is the new.
0: Well, it's always funny, you know, anywhere, pretty much UK or Ireland, the, the, anything that's called a new course is always, very, the term is very relative, right? I mean,
1: yeah. old Tom Morris <laughs>
0: old Tom Morris designed the uh, the new course at St. Andrews. And I, I remembered my first time going there, I thought, I don't want to play the new course. Like show me the old one. And then like, no, this was designed in like 1895. Oh, okay. That actually sounds like it would be a a, a pretty uh, cool experience. I love the Heathland golf. Maybe my favorite because I I just love playing golf when it's firm, when the ball's rolling, but you you have two elements in Heathland golf that you don't really have in links golf. That I I think the advantage it has over links golf is it's hard to play. You know, a lot of people will take long trips and it's hard to play eight to 10, you know, straight days of, of links golf, uh, in the wind and just kind of get beaten up by that, by people that aren't used to doing that every week. That's one. And the elevation change, you get a lot more land movement in the Heathland yet still getting the firm turf and, you know, not it's, it's more peaceful than getting crushed by the wind and, uh, Sunningdale, Berkshire, Walton Heath, and everything in that area has been, uh, just, uh, I, I, if I could pick a place to escape Florida in the summer, I think I would want to do it, uh, in, in the area where you live to go play a lot of golf
1: yeah i I agree with all of those courses you mentioned there Chris and, and you know we're right on the edge of London I mean we're kind of 15 minutes from Heathrow Airport 30 minutes from downtown London it, it's really it, you know and at the same time you're in the middle of the countryside so um it, it's it's a really nice area to to live in with, with loads of variety of golf courses but we're very fortunate that's for sure and and uh, I certainly make the most of it I play a lot of money games around here that's what keeps me interested. Um, as much as I like the golf courses and, and, and the heat land and all of those. And you make good points there about the architecture on them and particularly Harry Colt. You know, they, they very rarely close off the front of a green. So it's, it's, it's unusual to have to carry the ball over a bunker or over a water hazard onto the green. Normally, they give you an opportunity to chase it in off the ground and you've got the contours on the ground that help you chase it in or, or feed it away from you if you don't get it right. And that's what's so brilliant uh, about the architecture. But up in Sunnydale, just going back to that, to, to the money games, I see Joel Damon was talking about it last week money games it's one way of keeping yourself sharp that's for sure you've got to stay sharp as a competitor and Sonny Dell is a group of maybe 20 guys or so maybe more 30 guys maybe 40 and we rotate against each other playing the caddy master puts the games together Um, we all have handicaps and give the shots and and what they do they do two things first of all uh, they, they play history so if I play a guy off six handicap and I beat him he gets seven shots the next time against me. And then if I beat him again, he gets eight shots against me. And then if he beats me, it goes back to seven and so on. That's what kind of keeps it fun. And then secondly, they mix up the groups all the time. So you're not playing with the same guys over and over. Um, And it it, it makes for a fair game. The money kind of rotates, but the money can be big, you know, it's all relative, like Mm. everything. But uh, sometimes it
0: gets up into four figures. What do you play off of as a handicap then?
1: Uh, Between plus two and plus four, uh, depending on who I'm playing. And sometimes at the moment, it's probably near scratch. I'm not playing very much. I, I, I was playing about six weeks ago, quite a lot. Uh, but I've been busy the last month or so. And I've been in Ireland a bit, so I haven't been able to play a whole lot.
0: Well, it's always so hard to to uh, to try to handicap what pros are. It's one, one, I mean, all your tournament rounds are on courses that are just, or there's not even a rating for how difficult you know some of these courses play and whatnot. But Uh, I want to kind of go backwards, you know, gosh, the the Irish listeners are going to, you know, hate me for talking all this London golf with you and not talking Ireland golf or somebody from, from outside Dublin, but where, where did you play growing up? I guess, where where did you learn the game and kind of, did you realize uh, what a, what a gem of a country Ireland was for golf as a young person, or do you have more appreciation maybe for that now?
1: Uh, I think I've more appreciation now. I mean, I grew up in a very insular uh, Ireland back in the 1980s, uh, you know, going away to Spain or Portugal, was like going to the moon, never mind thinking about going to America. You know, I, I never left the country till I was, I think, 19 or 20 years of age. You know, you stayed, I grew up in Ireland, grew up in a suburb of Dublin. My mom and dad are from Donegal, the very top left-hand corner of Ireland, and we used to go up there for the holidays, the summer holidays for two or three months. Dad would come up every weekend, and mom would go up with the kids, and we'd stay there. And uh, we had a small house there, and that was kind of my my childhood. And and I wasn't a golfer, Chris. I mean, my dad was a good player. He was a one handicap, and he used to play the amateur scene in Ireland. There's a great amateur scene in Ireland, north, south, east, and west of Ireland. Four big championships, four majors, as we call them, and he used to play in all of those as well as the Irish Championships. Uh, as the Irish Championship and and the odd scratch cup and, and I used to go and caddy for him when I was younger during the summer holidays but my big passion was Gaelic football um, and, and that's what I was good at uh, golf was not something that came easy to me it never did in my career to be honest it still doesn't come easy to me you know Gaelic football was where I was driving myself towards and until I broke my knee when I was 19.
0: I hope you understand how frustrating that is as an American uh, Ryder Cup fan. That golf comes very hard to you, and uh, you you beat you beat our ass in the Ryder Cup every single time. And you have a very storied Ryder Cup career. No, that's that's great. That really helps uh, helps uh, helps my, helps heal my wounds. I'm still looking from that, but I wanted to get good to the, teammates. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the 91 Walker Cup was at Port Marnock. Was that a course that you had uh, yeah. had played a lot as a junior or as a young person and just kind of scrolling through some of the names there? You know, Padraig Harrington was a, a peer of yours. You guys grew up in the same area and then going up against Phil and Bob May and uh, David Duvall were on that other team. What was did you have full appreciation for how great the Walker Cup was, how big of a deal that was when you played in it? And what do you remember about that event?
1: So growing up in Dublin, as I said, uh, Gaelic football was my passion. I played golf during the summer. I was about five handicapped when I was 19 years of age. And then I broke my knee and I couldn't play football anymore. At that stage, I was in college in Dublin uh, doing a diploma in three-year diploma course in in, in marketing in college. So I was on crutches for six months, came off the crutches. And I started to play golf then the last two years of college. Um, I started to play 12 months of the year rather than just, uh, just the two or three during the summer. And, and uh, I couldn't play football, couldn't train anymore, which is really devastating for me because as I say I, I was I thought that was pretty good at I was going to get to the very top of it my golfs kind of got good it wasn't amazing but it got good I got down to kind of scratch handicap maybe one handicap when I finished college then I worked for a year I worked six months in Brussels in EC. that was the first time I left Ireland so that was god what year was that 97 I was 21 years old then yeah so I was 21 when I left Ireland I went over there at 21 I worked for six months in DC in Brussels and then I worked six months in an investment company in Dublin. And then I met a guy who knew the coach in San Diego, uh, a small university called U.S. International. I ended up going there for my last two years, uh, for two more years to get a second degree in international business um, and also kind of play golf. And that was the first time I went to America. I was 22 years of age. When I was over there, that's where I really escalated as a golfer. you know, I used to play in the, in, in the same tournaments as, as Phil, who was the big star of Arizona at the time. And we were a decent D- Division I team, but we were certainly not to the level uh, of the top teams. And I did OK and, and, and played well and then came back and dominated the amateur scene in Ireland those two summers that I came back. And, and that escalated me into the Walker Cup team. So, yeah, I, I, of course, I knew where, how big a deal it was. Uh, I had made a kind of private deal with myself before I went to college in America to say, if I don't um, make the Walker cup team in 1991 in Port Marnock, I'm not going to have a go of being a pro. And if I do, I will. And I made the team and uh, went to the tour school after it, came second, and uh, I've been on tour since. So that's it in a nutshell.
0: That's quite a bet to have made with yourself. You ever, do you ever wonder what would have uh, what would have happened if you didn't make that team?
1: Yeah, I would have gone into business. I mean, that's what I was... You know, I thought I was going to be. That's what I was primed for. I had five years of education to be business. So I was thinking all about business, and that's where I was going. Um, I really didn't think I was going to be a pro, to be honest. I didn't think I was good enough to be a pro. Um, but I, I kind of chiseled out a, a really good amateur career. And it wasn't true dynamic golf. It was just pure grit and determination. I look back on it more than anything else. I had a good game. I had a solid game. But it certainly wasn't anything that was tour standard. And kind of nobody was more surprised than me when I went to the tour school and came second. I kept my head down. I didn't look around me, didn't look at a scoreboard, didn't know what what was going on, didn't want to know what was going on. I just kept playing away. And next of all, I, I end up coming second. That was that was kind of me. I stumbled into professional golf.
0: Yeah, I'd say it worked out uh, decently well, at least uh, it's fair to say. I, I usually wait a little while to you know get into Ryder Cup stuff with uh, with someone, but there's so much Ryder Cup to cover with you that I uh, I want to make sure we get this in on, on the front half if we can. So first question I have. So sure. you were a Ryder Cup rookie in 2002, and I got a lot to ask about you know that first Ryder Cup you play in. But first off, what was it like waiting a year for the event? Obviously, this year's event is postponed until next year. The circumstances are obviously quite different. Uh, it was postponed because of 9-11. But notably the team was set in 2001 and didn't change for the 2002 playing which is different than this year so what was that year like waiting an extra year to play in your first Ryder cup what do you remember about that
1: oh god what i remember chris was it was a bloody nightmare that's what i remember i went into making the team in 2001 i'd finished sixth in the money list i had made the team comfortably it was my first Ryder cup i just won the welch open i was flying I was playing really well. I couldn't wait for the Ryder Cup. And then 9-11 happened and it was cancelled. And then the next 12 months, my form just went down and down and down. And I was languishing about 50th in a money list by the time the Ryder Cup came around the following year, having a really poor season, very few top tens. And I'm going into this huge event as probably the weakest player in the team because i lost all my form. And it's like, oh my God, Ryder Cup is so difficult in normal chances. Never mind going in there, playing as bad as I have, missing more cuts than I was making. And uh, yeah, I I went into it with a lot of fear, I have to say. And that's where, you know, why I hold Sam Torrance, the captain, in such high esteem is, is, he was the reason that I came out of it the other side.
0: So, what was it like coming into that team? Who were the? I want to really dig into you over the process of a lot of these questions on what makes sure. the European model work. Um, and kind of, I, and at that period of time, it wasn't this you know pure dominance from Europe like we've seen over the last you know two decades or so. But I want to know yeah. when you walked into that and you came in and saw that team room. You're a rookie. I imagine you're probably being one of the quieter voices in the room. But what did you feel like you walked into? Did it, did it feel I guess kind of describing the team atmosphere and the confidence and the way that team uh, carried itself from year to year and had, you know, kind of getting into the succession plans and the way the whole system works in Europe is something I really want to unpack without, of course, you probably won't give away too many of the secrets, but I just want to know, like when you came in, did you, did you look around and say, wow, these guys have really got this figured out or, you know, has it come really a long way since then?
1: What, What I remember most, there's definitely a hierarchy, you know, you move into the hierarchy and, uh, You're part of the team. So that's important. What I moved into more than anything, Chris, which is never talked about, but one of the real absolute fundamentals. And, you know, I brought a number of fundamentals ultimately into my captaincy. But the number one fundamental more than anything else was fun. You know, when you, walk, you came into an atmosphere that was alive, there was energy. And the energy wasn't of, oh, my God, I hope we don't lose. Oh, my God, this is so, you know, it's so difficult. Oh, my God. You know, it was quite the opposite of, oh, my God, I can't wait to get this on. Just sitting in the room and looking around. I remember looking around and seeing Monty. It was just so ready for Thursday or for Friday, rather. I mean, for earlier in the week. And it wasn't like giddy ready. It was just like, yeah, just bring it on. I'm ready. And I remember looking, he, he personified and he gave off a body language of, I got this. And then you look across at you know, Langer, um, you know, and you look across uh, Sergio, who was just bursting through at that stage and, you know, Westwood and, you know, there was such a a, a stoicness, um, a a resolution about them, but it wasn't in a stern way. It wasn't in a giddy way. It was more of a resolute way, but also with a smile on their face. The banter was great. The atmosphere was relaxed. You were made feel very part of a group of guys taking on this enormous challenge in a Ryder Cup. There was no doubt, but doing it with a smile on our faces.
0: Did you get the sense that there was extra, any angst in the room because of how things had played out at Brookline in the, in the previous Ryder Cup? Was there an extra revenge factor in that? I know you weren't a part of the 99 team, but uh, did you get this, that sense from the other guys?
1: No, no. Wasn't even referenced. I don't even remember it being mentioned, to be honest. Mm. Um, Sam was a vice captain to that and I, I nicknamed him after that and, and 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 still call him to this day happiest guy in the room I mean Sam was, was just everywhere you saw Sam he was beaming as a captain you know it, it just that body language as a captain uh, it, it just kind of it's like he just punches the air out of all anxiety or anxiousness around uh there was no bitterness recriminations of, of what happened in in 99 you know we'd moved on it's now three years later because of 9-11 and and uh no, I don't even remember it to be mentioned, to be honest.
0: Is the first uh, that first tee shot in the Ryder Cup all it's cracked up to be?
1: Yeah, well, I, I knew I wasn't playing in the morning. Sam capped me really well. And, you know, that's an important thing to kind of touch on. So what he did, myself, there was four of us, myself, Lee Westwood, uh, Philip Price, I think it was Per Fulke, The four of us had really lost form that year. You know, some players are playing better. Some, play- No, no, it was Jesper Parnovic. Those four players, and Jesper was still in America. So the three of us uh, who were based in... in in the UK um, were brought up to um, the Belfry the week before by Sam I live beside Sam here down in Sunningdale and uh, we went up for a practice round 12 or 10 days maybe before the Ryder Cup Uh, the World Championship was on over in Ireland ironically Uh, none of us had qualified to play in that and uh, he said, come on, let's get in. Let's all get together and get up and, and have a run around uh, in the we get to have a look at the course. At that stage, all the stands were up and we kind of had a nice uh, four ball on the way around. We had a bit of food afterwards, nice bit of banter. Um, and then on the way back, we got in. Sam had a, a driven BMW, um, a, a driver. And we got in the back of the car and he jumps in the back beside me, uh, this big 7 Series BMW. And he's got a bottle of pink champagne and two glasses. He opens up the bottle of champagne. The, the, the drive back is about two hours from, from Birmingham in the Belfry. He said, right, we're going to talk about your role this week. And he went through everything. And he basically showed so much confidence in me. He told me the role everybody was going to play, how many matches everybody was going to play, how many matches I was going to play, who my, who my partners would be just gave me such exude of, of of confidence that, you know, you're part of the team. You're not kind of a guy I'm trying to manage here. Uh, he made me mm. a real, real part of it. And, and getting out of the car on the far side, you know, I really felt like I was going to be in a very important – he made me feel a very important part of his team, a very important member of his team, even though, you know, on the car journey on the way up, I felt that I was the outsider and I was a problem that he had to manage.
0: Wow. That sounds like leadership to me. I feel I feel like on, on our side of the pond, it's a lot of the – the players dictating so much stuff and, and and almost not having feeling like they're kind of reporting to someone I, I get the sense from you that you just had such respect for the captaincy and, and the, maybe the europeans have more more respect for you know the 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 process and the figurehead at the top of it uh than uh than maybe the americans do i don't know if you can speak to that directly but that just sounds like a very different system than maybe what we have
1: Well, I mean, I think it's different in America now, Chris, but certainly there's a huge important dynamic here um, that America were missing that don't do now. And that was the fact that all of the Ryder Cup captains in Europe were chosen by their peers, chosen by the players, right? The players committee, representative of the players, were the guys who chose who the captain would be. Not, you know, a PGA board or, you know, somebody from the outside or you know some figureheads picking it no it was the actual players who put the captain in place and that was a very important dynamic i know post task force now american have changed that and the players through the task force are, are, are very much in control of that now but you know, i felt that was probably where a lot of that respect came from
0: well going back to o2 you uh you become the person that uh is seals the clinching point one I want to know why it seems that to, that to be so uh, so important to the European players and that's something that I, I hear talked about a lot which is I find that very interesting because I think you guys have such a great team dynamic to it that it does seem uh, I remember Paul Azinger always referencing like the the European they nobody wants to be the guy that loses the final point but the Europeans take special special joy in, in clinching that final point so one how did you end up in that situation uh, where you were you know having the match with Jim Furick? To uh, to get that final the point you needed and you know what was that what was that like for you as a first time rider cupper?
1: Well, again, I'll just tell I'll answer your question if you don't mind by telling you a little story on it. Um, so my role was to play two day two, two rounds the first two days, and Porter Carrington was going to be my partner. I was going to play in the afternoon foursomes. Uh, with him and then I was going to play in the morning foursomes on the second day and then I was going to play my singles match and uh, first time we we go out the first day and we lose three and two Uh, but I played quite well that was my first Ryder Cup match I held my own Uh, Podrick felt he didn't play very well and went to Sam afterwards and said look I've let Paul down I haven't played very well I need uh, the morning off tomorrow um, to practice. So Sam uh, decided to leave him out. So Sam comes to me and he says, Paul, i got bad news. Paul doesn't want to play tomorrow. He really feels he let you down today. And I'm afraid um, that leaves you without a partner. I'm going to put in somebody else to play because you haven't prepared to play with. Uh, you know, you've prepared to play with Padraic and, and, you know, I, I don't want to take a chance of putting you with somebody else. So he said, look, you the afternoon is the four ball. You're probably not you're not going to play that. You know that anyway. So you won't be playing now to the singles. So I'm really disappointed because I've just got a taste of my first Ryder Cup match. Even though I've lost, I felt I've played my own. And now I want more. I've got like a little drug all of a sudden. I've forgotten about my form coming into it. And I'm I'm looking forward to having another bite of the cherry. So roll out the next day, uh, which is a Saturday morning, and I'm out walking. Uh, we played nine holes behind the groups that went off just to kind of get a feel for the course. Uh, I knew I wasn't playing in the afternoon. And then uh, one of the vice captains came down the fairway as we come up the ninth, uh, a guy called Derek Cooper, and uh, he, he turned the cart over towards me. We all looking at each other. God, what's he coming down here for? Who's What's happened or who's playing in the afternoon? And he turned it over to me. He said, jump in the cart, Paul. You're on the tee in 45 minutes. You're playing with Darren. So mm-hmm. I get up to the... Uh, up. Into the players' lo- into the players' lounge, and I sit down. and uh, Sam comes over and he says, "Look," he said, "last minute decision. Uh, Thomas played really poor. Thomas Bjorn with this morning with with Darren. I'm going to give Thomas a rest. You and Darren are good friends. I know you can fit in well with him in the foreball." Off you go. I know you'll be great. And off we went, and, and we had an unbelievable game. myself played myself and Darren played in the fourth game. Um, I think we played Davis and uh, Scott Hoke. I think it was Davis and Scott Hoke uh, in the four ball on Saturday afternoon. So all of the matches were finished. We were one down playing the eighteenth hole. Uh, the game, the golf was unbelievable. I, you know, we we were about eleven or twelve under par better ball, uh, and so were the Americans. The golf was fabulous. Um, no, it was Jim Furyk actually was playing if I remember rightly. So. Up The 18th, the dog leg left over the water. I'm on the fairway. Hoke was on the fairway. Anyway, long story short, uh, the other three players made a bogey and I hit an unbelievable forearm. Uh, it was the last shot of the day and I held this forearm beautifully into a back right pin against the wind. The wind was whipping across and I hit this unbelievable one of the best forearms I ever hit to about 20 feet. Made par, won the hole now that half the match, now we were level going into the, into the, level overall going into the singles the following day. It was a massive psychological boost for the team. And I performed heroically when it counted in the last few holes at birdied 16 as well. And uh, we come up into the into the lounge afterwards and everybody's on a high. The music's going. We're flying as a team. Sam comes over and gives me this massive bear hug. It's this grizzly, uh, grizzly, grizzly guy grabbing me, pulling me really tight. And he whispers in my ear, he said, McGinley, you showed so much balls today at that number um when it really counted on that 18th hole, I'm going to put you out tomorrow, number 12, because I know you can handle a big occasion if it comes down to it. So now I am 10 foot tall. I mean, picture a guy coming in, missing mm. more cuts than he's making. And uh, now here I am going to be playing the anchor role in the Ryder Cup team the following day in a match that could well come down um, to the last game. So I go off to my room and I have a shower and I come back down for dinner and uh, all the guys are sitting down. And I remember Thomas Bjorn saying to me, have you seen the draw for tomorrow? I said, no, but I'd known in my own head that Sam, I was playing number 12 Sam had told me but I didn't say it to anybody and I kind of casually went over picked up the draw and I looked down number 12 Jesper Parnovic then I looked up number 1 and it was Monty and I thought like, where am I and then I saw myself at, at number 9 and I thought god I'm being hidden Sam's playing games with me here he's saying one thing and doing another he's kind of hidden me there at number 9 in the order so I say nothing and I sit-down, and Sam comes comes in about 20 minutes later from his press conference. And as he comes in, I step up, and I go over to walk over, and he says, I know, I want to speak to you. Come on over here. And he pulls me over again, sits me down, pulls up a chair right opposite him, and gets his face right in mine. He says, I know what you're going to say. And I said, well, look, Sam, you told me I was going to play number 12, and I was looking forward to playing that role. And, you know, I just feel like you've hitting me now, and number nine. He said, no. He said, before I put in the team, I had to think about it. And I really feel the winning point is going to come somewhere between 8 and 10. And I put you right in the middle there. I know you can handle this occasion when it comes down to it. So I was kind of pacified and I thought, okay, fine. If that's what he thinks, that's what I'm going to do. And, and off I went. Quite Long story short, roll up the next day. I'm playing Jim Furick in the singles. And we've just missed the green. Both of us have missed a green on 18 left. And uh, as I'm walking up, um, Sam is leaning against the bridge. I can still see him leaning against this bridge with this big, huge grin on his face. As I'm walking up, remember, the Rider Cup is on the line. And this, this guy has got the biggest grin you've ever seen, the captain, looking at me as I reach it. And as I reach the bridge, he puts ha- his hand on my shoulder and walks across the bridge at me. And he says, this is why you're number nine. Do this for me. Do this for your team freights. You've got this. And I walked over the bridge and I walked away. And rather than thinking, oh, my God, the Rider Cup's on the line, he, 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 he t- also told me that up and down would, would win the Rider Cup for us. As I walked away, rather than thinking, oh, my God, I hope I don't screw it up, I hope I don't, I felt the opposite. I felt so empowered and unshackled to think, I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And that was the mindset I did, and, and I chipped it on to whatever it was, 10, 12 feet, and, and hold the putt. So that was the kind of management Sam did of me, and he giving given me that responsibility, felt, was was what I needed, and 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 I seemed to relish it.
0: Gosh, I wish I could root for for you. You know, I, I, as you're even as you're beating us, that that's a really cool story. <laughs> I wish it almost got me to forget how much I, uh, you know, I root against Team Europe, but that is a a extremely cool story. I, I knew you'd be a great guy to to kind of get those kind of nuggets from. I mean, you you've just seen so much stuff, uh, in the in the course of uh, playing and and becoming a captain and whatnot. But going to '04, I don't really have a whole lot on this, but just was kind of curious as to Building up towards your captaincy, what did you learn from Bernard Longer as a captain, or how different was that the next year? And what do you? Uh, it se- it seems like you you vividly can picture how the the vibe and everything was from 2002. But did that change at all into 2004, or did that continuity kind of speak to uh, kind of what what's uh, what would later come for Europe?
1: Uh, it was a different vibe. I mean, the captain brings the vibe, uh, Chris, and and you know it was a different vibe. Bernard was a lot more serious guy than. Um, you certainly wouldn't be playing music in the in the team room the way we were with Sam, but that was okay. We all had a huge amount of respect for Bernard Langer, a real statesman of the tour, a state, statesman of the team. Very Germanic in in how he was going to captain. We knew that. You know, a meeting at seven o'clock meant a meeting at seven, not one minute past seven. We all knew to be early. You know, he would wait even though we all be sitting down at five minutes to seven. He wouldn't come into the meeting room until it was it was uh, it was seven o'clock. And I remember with a big long table like a big boardroom table in this Marriott hotel. I think we stayed in. Um, outside of Detroit, you know, it was just a generic boardroom table. I remember looking around before one of the meetings and going, wow, this should be alive. We should have images on the wall here. This should be alive. We need to make, you know, if I'm ever captain one day or if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a team room that's alive. That's, you know, this is, can't be just another Marriott boardroom uh, that anybody uses. This should have images on the wall. It should have curtains. It should have carpet. And I started dreaming dream up all these things, which I ultimately put in place in 14. So Bernard was very... Um, he was a lot more hands-on than me as I evolved into be because I was formulating my ideas all the time. He was a lot more hands-on. He was got involved in what the players were doing on the course, something I didn't do. In fact, I did the opposite. I stayed away from the players when were on the golf course, and you know I didn't see my role as telling Rory McIlroy it's a five iron rather than a six, or be careful with the wind here, or you need to do this, or uh, Ian Poulter, whatever the case may be. Watch the, watch the reading of this putt. The guys in front missed it by a by you know, over reading it or whatever. So what Bernard did, what was very interesting was he stayed on the par threes um, and generally pinpointed a few of the par threes. And our, there was one, another really good story here. Myself and Paul Dick played Tiger and Davis on the afternoon of the second day. We were two down after two, and we got ourselves back to maybe all square. I think 13 in, in the Oakland Hills is the par three. I'm pretty sure it's 13. It's about 140 yards or so. And it's a two-tiered green, uh, really narrow really narrow tier on top and a bunker behind the green. And um, it's all about distance control. We were all square and maybe one up at that stage playing it. No, no, we, we definitely had the honor. So it was Pardick's tee shot. This was the foursomes. And uh, crowd behind the tee box uh, in a stand. So Bernard comes over in his very Germanic way and, and kind of gets the two of us together. And he says, Pardick, what club are you going to hit? And part says to the caddy, what is it? The caddy says, whatever, 143. He said, uh, "He said, what club are you going to hit? And part says, oh, 143. Nice nine iron. He said, no. He said, I want you to hit wedge. And then part says to the caddy, well, what's the carry What's the carry to the top tier? The caddy says, 135. He says, Bernard, I can't hit a wedge, 135. I won't get it on the top tier. And Bernard said, I don't care. I want you to hit it into the slope and come back down to the bottom of the hill. He said, but but, but that's going to leave a really tough body. He said, yeah, I want you to hit it into the hill and come back down the bottom of the hill. Make it look like you've hit a good shot. So Pavlik being the dutiful player that he was at that stage, uh, I don't know if he'd have done it late in his career, he stood over, he hit his 135 shot, pitched into the slope, ball came running down the hill and all the crowd went, ooh, behind and all of that. And kind of didn't show a lot of disgust, but he kind of looked like he was disappointed. In fact, he probably was. He was mad at Bernard, even though he'd never admit it. And he picked up the tee and he kind of walked over to me and he looked at me with this really look like, I knew I was never going to do that. What's this guy doing? Next of all, Tiger stands up. It's his, his shot. And he plays the most beautiful nine iron, three quarter, spin off, you know, loads of spin. Up in the air, this thing coming down really, really soft. It pitches two feet from the pin, hard bounce into the back bunker. And he he looks at Davis. He goes, Christ, he said, I hit that beautifully. So Davis gets into the bunker and he's got no shot. And he plays an unbelievable shot out, just misses the flag, catches the tear back down to where I was putting. I roll the putt up to two feet, public knocks it in, we win the hole. The point being, Bernard had stood on that tee. He saw the top tier was rock hard. He saw that nobody could keep it on the top tier. And he gave part of the information he hit it on the bottom tier. And, um, you know, there's the value of a captain getting involved in what the players do.
0: Wow. That is a, that is quite the nugget. I, I kind of, I, I hadn't, I was wondering kind of where you were going with that. And I thought it was going to be, you know, that Tiger was going to think, you know, that uh, basically you were going to play off that Tiger was going to get the yardage wrong and try to hit it too hard and maybe fly the green. But the fact that he knew it was that baked up there, that's a that's an interesting interesting twist there. That's a very cool story.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we were the fourth game that day, Chris. So he stood on that tee and watched the first three games go through and had the information assessed and how firm the top of that tier was. So – um, yeah, he put it in play. Now, I, I, as I say, when I captained, I didn't do that. I didn't get involved, but there's no one way, you know, and as we go on to speak about the captaincy, you know, and, and you know, my insights on what I did, that doesn't mean what I did is right. It's just what I felt was right and, and what suited our team. I think there's there's so many different ways to captain the team. I mean, Sebi Ballesteros was flying around in a cart and, instructing the players what to do what not to do there was chaos behind the scenes by all accounting yet he still ended up being a a winning Ryder Cup captain so there's no there's no just one way of doing it and I think what you have to do is kind of be true to your own personality and you have to kind of dream it up yourself and and, uh, dream up what the dynamics need to be and and how you're going to captain I mean you know racing forward to last year for example or two years ago in in uh, in, in Paris, you know, Thomas Bjorn, um, you know, he, he was a very different captain of what I did. It was a very much a, a, a data-driven approach. You know, he looked at the American team, you know, nine of the twel- top 12, I believe, if I remember rightly, nine of the top 12 were, were ranked outside the top 100 in drive and accuracy. Only one, I think Ricky Fowler, if I remember right, was the only guy who was in the top 50 in driving accuracy. So they were kind of a, they were a long team, but they were erratic. Yes, there were a lot of great players, but, you know, hitting the ball on the fairway was was not something that they did. So, you know, he grew the rough accordingly. Uh, We'd all played that French Open over the years. I think every one of our players had a top 10 finish over the years. Every every one of the 12. You know, we were used to playing that tight golf course. and, And he set it up so that it would suit us and, and and not the Americans and you know that data driven approach on, w- was kind of how we set his stall out as a captain and put together some great pairings and you know we raced to victory so there's different ways of approaching uh, every, every captain sees it differently certainly in Europe it's not like we do exactly the same thing every time there's everybody comes with a slightly different approach.
0: I'm sure it's different player to player too, right? How, how to manage individual players. Some respond to some of that stuff and some would not respond very well. I'm sure to advice on the course or, you know, kind of a raw, raw cheering atmosphere or a more serious atmosphere and, and all that. It's, yeah, there's not like a, a formula, but I guess we, I was going to kind of save this question for later, but we can kind of get into it because you just hinted at some of the. Um...
1: So can I can just, just, just on that point, Chris, before, before you go on, I just want to c- come in on that point there. Again, another great nugget that I learned in my first Ryder Cup was from Jesper Parnevik, who I learned so much from. A very, very underrated person as well as a player. Um, and he said to me when I was playing a practice round the first match of the Ryder Cup, he said, Paul, there's one thing remember playing in the Ryder Cup this week. So there's an energy going to come from the crowd that you've never experienced before. Um, because we're playing at home, it's going to be a very strong, positive energy towards you. Now, you have to decide are you going to take that energy and are you going to ride it, interact with the crowd, get really involved and kind of ride it like a surfer would ride a wave? Or are you going to be like a Bernard Langer and you're going to be the duck underneath the water, kind of slowly going about what he's doing and kind of disconnecting away from all that energy that's going to be out there? Neither one is right. Neither one is wrong. You have to determine which one is the best for you as a player. And then you act accordingly. And and that was great advice because I, I was very much an interactive guy with the crowd and I certainly learned a lot and got a lot from the crowd. And, and you know, Ian Poulter, you'd, you'd say, would be something similar. And then other guys like Philip Price would be very much underneath the radar and kind of disconnected, almost like, I'm not playing the right of cup. This is just another match. And that kind of mindset is is productive for them.
0: That's interesting. And, and the nugget I was getting ready to get at, though, also is, you know, kind of talking about how the 2018 team was structured there. Um, you kind of alluded to that the U.S. team was just weak in driving accuracy. I'm curious as to what you've seen over the years as to, I don't know if it's typical mistakes, if that's a good question, or what typical mistakes you see the U.S. team making or those captains making, or if it's just kind of a general discussion on you know what, what, what you would do have done differently than they did it, or, or what, what traps they maybe fall into. Uh, of course, you may not want to give out too much of this advice, but just kind of where, <laughs> where things have, have gone wrong. And you again, you touched on that earlier about saying you know the, having the players pick the captain, etc. But uh, for fans, it's kind of hard, and even as a diehard fan myself, it's hard for me to really you know put my finger on it and say this is what we're doing wrong. But I, had to, I have to think, you know, being on the side of, uh, you know, so many winning Ryder Cups, you would be able to share better insight on that.
1: Well, again, I don't want to be giving away too many secrets, but I, I will at the same time answer your question. I, I think there's a couple of things that would immediately spring to mind. Um, you know, and a lot of people will disagree with that, but we, I, I certainly feel it. Uh, one of them is. And, and this maybe comes more from the media than the players. Uh, we're we're written off very quickly, you know, just because Tyrrell Hatton is not winning on the PGA Tour, we're kind of dismissed. I know Alan Shipnock wrote something, um, you know, in advance of the right after after you know Europe America were very giddy winning in uh, in New York in the President's Cup about how this is going to be the future and we we're going to knock Ryder Cups to oblivion going forward. And you know maybe it was said in jest, whatever. But I'll tell you what, it really resonated with us. It hurt us, and um, the lack of respect considering how much we'd done in Ryder Cups over the previous years really hit home and and it energizes and I think Rory referenced it in this press conference afterwards you know there's you know at the time the number one player in the world seeking him out to say now now what have you got to say and those kind of things although it might be said in jest and I know there's journalists and there's going to be narratives out there and you're trying to create something uh, but we love that kind of stuff you know Paul Azinger dismissing a few months ago I know, I know he kind of regretted it because he understood uh, he understood the mistake he made but dismissing kind of Tammy Fleetwood because he'd never won on a PGA Tour um, you know those kind of things uh, and Paul immediately realized he'd made a mistake and was all over trying to rectify it but that's playing right into our hands so respecting your opponent. Uh, Chris, you know, no matter what it is um, is massively important and, and if, a, if a media person or somebody comes out and, and, and you know says something like that it, it's important to nip it in the bud quickly as the captain or nip it in the bud and say that's not what we feel as a player he might be writing that as a journalist but you know I didn't hear any of that from the American team and, and those so, so respecting your opponent no matter what it would be whether it be in business whether it be in any kind of sport whether it be in the Ryder of cup whether it be in war no matter what it is we all know that you know first rule of engagement is to, is to respect the opponent so I think there's a bit of that goes on Um, and as I say it's not just from the players but there is part of that goes on Um, I think also the expectation on the American team is huge Um, you know I I talked earlier about the the fun element that we bring to the European Ryder Cup team, and it's something that I really try to highlight and bring as much as possible into our team room, was that element of fun. I still see that picture of Sam Torrance leaning against the bridge in the 18th. Uh, with all the pressure in the world on him and, and on us as a team with this massive grin on his face, like this was not the most important thing you're ever going to do. Um, this is uh, This is golf. This is sport. And, uh, you know, let's keep it in context. You know, I think we really bring that to the table and we deal with that a whole lot more better than, than the Amer- a whole lot better than, than what the American team do. I think our data driven approach, certainly the Thomas put into play in 2018 was spectacular. Um, some of the pairings he came up with based on data were, were fabulous. And, and what he, how he set the golf course up uh, based on data was absolutely, you know, it was genius. I mean, he just took where the Americans were weak and, and he highlighted it. And, and, you know, we were really well prepared for the examination paper that that was, you know, that was a U.S. Open style setup. And we as a team were really well prepared for that. And even going down to Thomas's picks, uh, you know, as much as he got criticized because we were out of form, he picked Sergio and Henrik Stenson. He picked the two of them as much as probably they didn't deserve a pick because of their form, but he picked them because he knew that this was going to be a test of fairways and greens. And there's are two better guys in the game than fairways and greens, uh, than Sergio and and, and Henrik over the last 10 years, but never gave that away in the media, never said why he picked them, took all the flack in the head, but he was preparing for the exam that that golf course was going to be. And um, I, I think we were really, really prepared for it. Um, and I don't know if the American team were.
0: Well, switching back to your uh, one more event from you as a, as a player in the Ryder Cup, I got You got to take us to uh, two thousand six as to what what happened at the end of uh, end of your singles match there. the The result of the Ryder Cup was not in question, um, as Europe uh, just absolutely dominated that year. But uh, take us to your singles match.
1: Yeah, I was playing JJ JJ Henry and. Um... Yeah, look, I mean that was uh, it was a Ryder Cup where we romped a victory. Uh, we had a very strong team. We were very much driven and fueled by all the emotion of Darren's wife Heather, um, who lived right next door to us, actually here in Sunningdale. Um, we had a, a a gate in the garden between us, there connecting the two houses. Um, so I kind of certainly personally lived through those uh, last two years of her life when you know she knew she terminal cancer and slowly, slowly went downhill and then passed away in August, uh, PGA week. Um, you know, the Ryder Cup was only, what, five weeks later, uh, and yet Darren turned up and played. So we're very much driven by that emotion uh, in the team room. Um, Darren was a pick um, and, you know, went on to play heroically. And, and, and we we were we had a very strong team, though, in fairness. Um, I, I know the Americans get criticized uh, for, for getting beaten badly there. But, I mean, we were, first of all, a very energized team, as I say. But secondly, we were a very, very strong team. If I remember rightly, Henrik Stenson and Robert Carlson were our two picks that year. You know, we went on to have stellar careers, both of them. Robert winning the Order of Merit. Um, you know, we 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 were really strong one to twelve. We had good pairings in place, and Wozzy was a great captain because he kept it simple. Chris, I mean, there's you know, there's all the different styles of captains that are interesting to analyze, and you know, woozy wasn't a rocket science. It certainly wasn't a data driven approach the way that Thomas's was. Um, his was more a case of hey, you two have played weller in the past. Off you go again. You know, Alazabal. Uh, you've played well in the past with uh, Sergio. Off you go. Um, you know, Paul. You've played well with Pardy. Off you go. You know, and, and he just he took he took fundamentals and pairings and stuff that have worked in the past and kind of got out of his get out of everybody's way and, and and let the quality of the team come through and, and and that's what we did. And my singles match with JJ, as you quite rightly said, the Ryder Cup was over at that stage. The cheers were coming from the 16th green, and uh, you know Darren's match had concluded at that stage. 18th is a par five in the K Club over water. Um, I'd hit the fairway. JJ was in a bunker. Match was all square. Um, I hit the best three would have ever hit in my life over the uh, over the water to about 40 feet behind the flag. Flag was in the front of the green. JJ laid up 120 yards, pitched on to 25 feet, I guess. Um, I rolled my putt down dead. And um, as I was walking off the green, uh, JJ conceded. Uh, as I'd walked and off, the, conceded my putt. Not, he did 25 footer for a half match and a, and a half point. Um, as as I walked off the green, a streaker came running past me. A male streaker, may I say? I remember he had a big uh, arrow on his back with a, with a with an arrow uh, pointing towards his ass. Nineteenth hole, and uh, as I, I turned to um, I turned to Des Smith, who was the vice captain, said, "Oh my God, what do I do here?" At this stage, all the crowd were cheering. He was running around the green. I knew he was going to jump in the water and if you lip read what I said as I walked off the green because the camera was facing me you could see I could say to him don't run on his line don't run on his line I said it twice the guy just kind of breezed by me and he ran off and he was waving at the crowd next of what he started doing circles around JJ who was lining up his putt so I walked over to JJ and I said pick it up uh, pick it up let's call it a half match JJ and I conceded the 20-25 putt to him and, and, and yeah I mean, it didn't make a difference. The Ryder Cup was won at that stage, but I guess in playing records, it makes a difference. And a lot of people came up to me afterwards and still to this day are mad because uh, they had me back to win uh, uh, with the bookies. And then the other person who's still mad is Wuzzy. Every time he's a few drinks on him now, and even I see him now to this day, you cost me the record, McGinley. If you'd have won that game, I'd have won the Ryder Cup by the rigorous margin any captain had ever won, more than Langer, more than anybody. You cost me. So I think he's half serious about it.
0: I don't think Monty is 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 uh is giving up that, that singles record and, and and conceding that putt.
1: No, <laughs> no, Monty's not. I mean, oops. I mean, again, you know, similar sort of thing about you know going back to the uh, to, to the underestimation of us in Europe, you know, and and man, Monty was brilliant. I mean, in a team room, Chris, he was just phenomenal. Not because, you know, same with Ian Poulter, you know, neither of them stand and they're not kind of rip it on the chest, kind of, we got to, you know, they're not the kind of Lionheart guys that you'd expect them to be. Both of them are actually quite quiet in the team room, uh, but there's a real air of, of resoluteness about them and bring it on and don't worry, we we got this covered. And that's what um, they're able to bring to the party and, and to be part of of stoic guys like that lee westwood is another one and 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 they're easily dismissed and um, certainly in, in in the media in america they're dismissed very quickly because they're not you know they haven't won a major and yeah, lee westwood hasn't won a major there's no tough two tougher guys that i ever played against competed against than lee westwood and and monty and and yet a lot of them you know a lot of their records and despite winning you know massively around the world both of them they're dismissed very quickly because they haven't won a major and i think that's unfair
0: yeah, I've never understood why winning a major would help you lead a bunch of professionals in a in a in a team event. I just I even you don't even have to have been, you know, an amazing player or anything. It 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 just is a it seems like a weird kind of prerequisite that the US team seems to emphasize a lot um really until until Steve Stricker becoming the captain, but I've never never really understood well,
1: that. Yeah, well, I mean We were like that in Europe, uh, to be honest, Chris. Um, I kind of was a little bit of the game changer in that regard. I mean, if just bring you back to 2012, Alzabal was the captain, the miracle in Medina. How he won that was amazing. I mean, that's a story in itself. I was a vice captain I had already captained twice in Europe at that stage what's called a SEVI trophy which is the best 10 from Europe against the best 10 from continental Europe and and uh, we had a heavily underdog team on two occasions and I was captain and both times we won and that's when I kind of got this sense of god I, this comes easy to me I, you know, this is a lot easier to me than hitting the golf ball um, I enjoyed this I loved doing the strategy I loved doing the team management I loved doing the talking with the players I loved the psychology in the media I loved how we put it together we had a really really undervalued team um, you know the Big star players like Luke at the time and Podrick and, you know, Polter and those guys, they, you know, they, they went playing. They were over in America playing. And I was, whereas the European team had Stenson and Carlson and these guys playing. And we were heavily underdog. And twice I took that team to victory. And that's when I kind of got on the radar. A young Rory McElroy came through at that stage too. And he in his rookie year, he was on the team and I captained him uh, as well as Graham McDowell. And, and, and we went on to. As I say, went on to win, and 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 that was kind of along with my vice captaincy, put me in prime position to be Ryder Cup captain. But when the debate came up in the players' committee and particularly in the media beforehand and players' views as to who should be the next captain, the the view of a lot of people was, well, I'm the I'm the next guy in line. Um, but then the view of a lot of other people was, well, you know, he hasn't won a major. You know, McGinley's not been a star superstar of the game in Europe. Yes, he's played in three Ryder Cups, but you know, he's always been six to twelve in the team. He's kind of one of the also rounds when it comes to the team. You know, we got to look for, we're going up against Tom Watson as captain of the American team. We need to have a big, stellar, big name to be able to sit at a press conference and kind of go up head-to-head against one of the greats of the game and Tom Watson. And I wanted to scream, even though I obviously didn't it to the media, but I wanted to scream, show me the correlation between the better the player, the better the captain. There is none. You know, Jack Nicklaus is the greatest player of all time according to major wins. And yet he lost in his Ryder Cup captaincy on a golf course he designed in, in his home state of Columbus. You know, Nick Fowler was our greatest ever player you know, and he'd lost, um, you know, comfortably in two thousand and eight. So show me the correlation that, in order to be a great captain or a great leader, you have to have have a big stellar record. And I think that was a mistake America were making for a number of years. And and it'd be interesting to see post Task Force now. Um, you know, going forward, if that's going to change because you don't have to win a major to be a, to be a great Ryder Cup captain, leadering men. And in fact, the, you could say the opposite, you know, the, the traits that you need, and this is just my own hunch of analyzing it, the traits that you need to be a stellar name in the game or to be a stellar winner in the game, a prolific winner in the game in terms of major championships and that drive and in an individual sport that you need to be so driven, so self-centered, so selfish, so incredibly about you you know those traits don't translate into leading twelve people. Um, they're two different, two different skill sets, and I think that's where the disconnect comes between the two. And that's my hunch on it. Anyway. That's my theory on it.
0: Well, I think at a, at a certain point as well, uh, you know, you you had I would say you had a very strong team. If I'm looking objectively at 2014 team, I would say that is a much stronger team than Europe fielded in 20, say 2016. 2012 team was a very strong team. Uh, at a certain point, though, you know, it, it does become. Somewhat about the players and how well they play. Obviously, there's the captain can do a lot of things to draw that out of them, but at the same time, also, there's also no substitute for just strong talent on a team. Is that fair to say? Oh,
1: absolutely. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you can be the best captain or the best leader. That you want to be in any business, but if you don't have the talent to work with, uh, you're really going to have a battle. And you know, I was very fortunate um with, with a wonderful team. You know, I had Rory McElroy right in the top of his game, for example, world number one, had won two majors that year. You know, uh, at the top top of the order. I mean, you know, I had a very strong team. You know, Garcia, Stenson, Rose. You know, I mean, wherever you want to go, you know, I seem to have a lot of strength. We were playing at home, but. It's important as a captain that you don't play on that too much. Um, you know, certainly not in the media. You don't want to build yourself up. Under promise, over deliver is a great mantra. I've heard many times uh, in, in different facets of life, not just in in, in captaincy, and, and and that's kind of where where I was at with it. Um, but you know. Wh- At the same time, it needed organization. You know, you just don't put the pairings together and out you go and step back and off it goes. You know, you have to create a platform for these guys to excel um, as a captain. And often that is done through simplicity and clarity. You know, these are... In my view, uh, certainly the more successful ones, they like structure. They like organization. They like to know exactly what's going to happen. They don't like things coming out of left field on them. They like a nice, easy, relaxed atmosphere in the evening times. And they were all the kind of things that I had to do to create a platform. Then in terms of communication, it's very important that you're, for me, having having um a lot of integrity with the players and being really honest with them never telling them a lie never telling them bs never telling them stuff that they you know they're not going to believe as a player that's what i wanted i just wanted to be straight told straight and and that's what i like to think that that how i dealt with all 12 of the players it, you know it wasn't a case of, of 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 sugarcoating anything um you have to be really really honest and clear with them and and put a put a strategy in place and you know As I think, you know, looking back and reflecting back on my captaincy and reflecting back on, you know, successful captaincies, whether it be American or whether it be European, I think that's what the captains bring to the table. Certainly Zinger did that with his pod system. You know, he brought a lot of clarity and buy-in from the players with what he did with that. And personally, I have a hunch on this. and, 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 you know, my hunch is because I wasn't, what we call a superstar of the game by any means and certainly not a major winner but it made me think about the game and and write a cups that i played in and write a cup captaincy it made me think in a very roundabout way because i had to think you know i didn't have the skill set to go out and overpower a golf course or the game never came particularly easy to me so i had to think in a very broad way about what i had to do in order to compete um it, it you know, players who are not as talented have to think in a different way and have a different approach to the game in order to um, compete against the more talented ones. And and that's where you know my view is that Ryder Cup captaincies from players who who may not have been the very very top echelon of the game are, are the guys that seem to excel in the captaincy because they've got they've got a, a much deeper thought process on the game. It's not a blinkered view of basically reaching the pinnacle as a player and as a player only. And you know, I. To be honest, again, you know, I'm probably going out on a limb here saying this, but I, I think that also extends in, into the telecasts and, and you know, into certainly my role as a as an analyst in golf. And I watch Brandel Shambly as well, who, you know, the easiest the easiest kick that you can give us is oh you know what's mcginley or what's Chambly got got to know about the game of golf they never were a top player they never they never won the they never won a major championship they never competed regularly at the very top level and granted that's a fair criticism but at the same time you know brandle and certainly me had, had to think on our feet we had to think of the game in a very very rounded uh way in order for us to to get an edge and and i'd like to think that that's what both of us would bring in the when we do sit down at the telecast is that we have a, a more rounded way and more relatable to the guy sitting back in his armchair uh, because, you know, the game never came easy to either. So I think I can speak for him saying that. Um, at the same time, you know, it's great to have a Nick Faldo or a, or a Duval or, or, or an Asinger to have that insight of guys um, who did reach the very pinnacle of the game. But I, I think, you know, good TV telecast comes from, comes from a combination of both. And just because somebody wasn't a great player, it's, it's, it doesn't mean they can't be a great captain. And just because somebody wasn't, you know, a major winner, that doesn't mean they can be a real cutting analyst when it comes to to the game of golf.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I thought about that a lot with when it comes to broadcasters and how, you know, I I, I may disagree with some things Brandel says, uh, but it's not because. his lack of experience or the fact that he's only won one time that he's been there. And if anything, people like yourself and Brandel, whose perspective is, look, I've been there, I've competed with these guys, I've gone toe to toe them, and I can recognize, you know, the skills and the people that have been, you know, been able to separate themselves from someone at, at my level, uh, that, that has a lot of value. And sometimes I almost think, you know, the more success you have, it can, cloud your views on certain things and and not be able to, you know, appreciate certain things. And as you said, how that contributes to captaincy, I've never really thought of it that way in terms of, you know, when you're a top, top, top player in the game, and Phil has not been a captain yet, but let's just say Phil Mickelson, you're used to kind of having things your way in general for 20, 30 years now of... You know, whatever it is, you know, with sponsors, with every time you walk into the room, you're, you know, unless Tiger's right there, you're, you're the best player to have, you know, in that room, uh, you know, career wise and all that. And that, you know, how does that affect your decision making and everything you do in life that that, I would imagine that's very different for someone that, you know, like yourself, who has, has kind of been had a lot of success, but not to the not to that same level.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're talking about a Ryder Cup team from six to 12. I was that soldier. I know what it's like. I know how to manage those guys because that's where I was. I know what it's like to be told psychologically when when the captain says, oh, by the way, you're only going to play three matches out of the five, or you're only going to play two matches out of the five, or, you know, you're going to play down the order or whatever, and the focus is on the other players. I know that. Um, And and sitting down when I was announced captain, I I was very honest with myself. and, and I wanted to know what the psyche was like of the top players, so I made it my business to get to know what way the top players think, um, and also how to manage real superstars. Um, so over here in, in Europe, you know, I'm sure it's getting bigger now in the States, but soccer is is a huge game over here. And, and Alex Ferguson uh, was the, was the manager of Man United, probably the most decorated, successful manager in the history of soccer at club level and um he was a guy i sought out um prior to the Ryder cup captaincy We had a couple of nice lunches a uh, nice bottle of wine over lunch um up in uh, up in manchester where he lives i met him on two occasions up there as well as had numerous chats on the phone and you know it wasn't just a case of you know i'm paul mcginley i'm now Ryder cup captain tell me how to lead and how to manage a team far from it you know we went up there very organized um, with, with my notebook out and specific questions in areas that I wanted to hit him with um, and had to be very careful that I wasn't getting sucked into drinking the really good wine he put on the table and uh, you know but my questions to him were very much along the lines of of that you know how do you manage a Ronaldo or how do you manage a David Beckham or Ryan Giggs going into a big, huge game? What do you do in the media? How do you position them? What do you do with communication to them? How do you how do you communicate with them with the other players in the room as well? What do you say to them at room meet at, at team meetings? You know what kind of psyche do these players have? How do I how do I get into that psyche? How do I get credibility from them? All of those kind of questions. Uh, were, were were ones that I, that that he in particular I, I was picking the, pick, picking the brains off because when you become Ryder Cup captain the you you're not given a manual all you have is your own experience and it's important to kind of. Isolate where are the areas that you know where you're strong? I mean we all have our egos and we all think we know we're strong in certain areas, but where am I weak and and it, it's finding finding people who can help you unlock those questions that you might't have the answer to and, and that was a very much a big part of of, of my captaincy uh, that mentoring and it wasn't just Alex Ferguson there was a few other people, not too many, but a few other people that I garnered opinion on, but I only went with specific questions, not with a whole generalization of of what I should do
0: and that's where. I, I, you know, I was planning to ask you about, you know, the controversy that surrounded leading up to you being selected as captain uh, in 2014, and just kind of how all that played out, and com- combining some of the earlier th- earlier things you said, uh, along with what you just mentioned on, you know, some people saying they needed a stalwart or somebody with a great record to go up against Tom Watson. I, one, I never understood that argument, but. It became a, a you know a public kind of spat in some ways, and that uh, I, I don't know what your relationship was like with Darren Clark leading up to it. I don't know if he was necessarily the ringleader saying that you know potentially somebody like Monty should be reelected as captain. He, you know four years after uh, captaining at Celtic Manor, but can you kind of take us uh, through that time? I don't know you just touched on it some, but you know who was in support, what what kind of support you felt and got, and how that whole thing went down. Because I remember being very confused at the time, and it's somewhat cleared up for me, but it's still kind of confusing.
1: <laughs> it's still confusing to me, Chris. You're not the only one. <laughs> it was uh, it was a horrible time, to be honest. I mean, I, I had a kind of three. From post-Medina, which was September 2012, to me being announced in January 2013, that was a horrible period, certainly in my life, because I felt that I'd, 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 um, I I'd had the um, CV, you know, not alone that I played in three Ryder Cups, and but I captained twice um, Europe to victory in the SEVI Trophy, which was huge. And in some ways, my captaincy in both of those was better than what I would ended up doing in Glen Eagles. Um, I really do feel that. I mean, the strategies I used, bearing in mind the quality uh, of player, with all due respect, I had at my disposal compared to the Europeans, uh, it was great to, to you know, I put a strategy in place of leading from the front, establishing a lead, using momentum, you know, using our best players, and kind of hiding. It was the whole lot of thing went on behind it, and and I ended up, we ended up winning that. And then, you know, my vice captaincies went well. Where I was cap- vice captain to Monty in two thousand and ten, I was a vice captain to. Uh, to Al in 2012, we'd won on both occasions. And, you know, now I'd done five Ryder Cups and, you know, all positive experiences, we'd won all five. Um, and I felt that I was on the escalator and I, w- I-, I was the right guy to be. And then out of left field, without even speaking to me, um, Darren did a press conference and-, and announced that he wanted to be captain. And nobody saw it coming. Nobody expected it. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, where did that come from? And, I, and nobody's more surprised than me. And, of course, at that stage, Dan Darren's a big name. He's a lot of charisma. And he had a big golfing CV. Um, he was a major winner at that stage. And, um, you know, a lot of media and a lot of people said, yeah, you know what? Darren um, is, is, is the guy, um, you know, to be the next captain. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm going to get pushed out of here. And I've done all, all the spade work. But luckily for me, um, a lot of the players stood on my shoulder, um, you know, I'll name a few, Luke Donald, Ian Poulter, and certainly Rory McIlroy, you know, who ended up being the number one player in the world and becoming very influential, all came out very strongly, initially through social media and then through the media, that I should be the captain. I think Darren realised then that the writing was on the wall, that maybe this wasn't his turn, that he, he needed to wait Um and then unbelievably, instead of withdrawing and, and kind of saying, you know what, maybe this is not my time. I'm happy to wait. And, and you know, Paul will be a great captain. Um, he, he said, uh, I, I, I don't want to be, but maybe Monty should be. Uh, and, and of course, that turned it off in a whole different, a different tangent after that. And the kind of, you know, I, I didn't see anything through the media, but I, I was very distraught about it and very upset that I might end up being captain. But luckily, as I say, a lot of the players came out on my side. Um, And the players ultimately were making that decision because the players committee were very highly influenced by what the top players said. Um, And luckily when it came to the to that meeting, it was a two-horse race between my and Monty, and, and the committee decided that I would be the guy. You know, did it affect my relationship with Darren? Absolutely. You know, um, has it been repaired? Yeah, yeah. To a large extent, it has. You know, uh, I'm very fond of Darren. We've gone through a huge amount in our careers together. Like I said earlier, with Heather and everything. You know, we grew up together uh, playing amateur golf uh, right through careers. You know, Darren was one of my very best friends on tour, and and, and um, you know he he. he he, he wrote to me afterwards, apologized, um, all of those things, and of course I accepted his apology. And of course it was one of those things in between a relationship between two people that goes wrong, um, and, and it, it did go wrong. But I, will I go out for dinner with Darren now and go for a drink with him and play golf with him? Absolutely, every day of the week, no problem. It's you know you leave guy, bygones be bygones and, and you move on. Uh, but it was a it, it was a tough time but to be honest. It was a very tough time, and particularly because it really affected my relationship uh, with, with Darren.
0: Well, do you at least believe that he, uh, bear with me on this one, that he was doing, in his own mind and in his heart, that he was honestly doing what he thought was best for the team and it wasn't personal towards you? And where I'm coming from is he knew it would affect your relationship and he was still willing to do it because it was what he believed. Whether or not he's right or wrong, completely ignoring whether he's right or wrong, do you at least see it that way at all? I do. I do see
1: it that way. And that's how I get past it, Chris, because I do I do see it that way. And I see it that that was his view. Uh, it wasn't a view I agreed with, but that was his view. And I do honestly think he was doing it because he was worried that my CV and my pedigree going up against Tom Watson was going to really hurt uh, the European team. I think that was what's driving him uh, as much as anything else. Yeah, you know, that's that's just the way it is. Uh, and and uh, he saw it that way. I would have loved to debate that. And again, my argument would have been, show me the correlation, Darren, between the better the player, the better the captain. Show me the fact that you have to have won a major to be a great captain because there is no correlation. You can't do it. You, I mean, I'm, excuse me, they've made me part of um, of the uh, London Business School here in, you know, one of the top business schools in the world. Um, the, the Leadership Institute made me a, a, an executive fellow. Um, post to write a cup of my captaincy, it's used as a, Case study now every year in in their Sloan course uh, for the elite students, and uh, I go in and and I lecture on on, on the case study uh, every year for the last five years, um, and dur- as well as that, I've also got involved with the Leadership Institute there, and and we've expanded this 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 feeling that I've got or, or this this question of you know does the best businessman make the best leader, um, you know does you know does the best captain in football you know, the best footballer make the best uh, manager. And there's certainly no correlation in sport, but I've we've kind of done a thesis on it at London Business School um, going into leadership in, in business as well. And again, you know, the correlation is quite clear um, that the mindset to be driven to be the best in the world at what you do doesn't necessarily translate into be the best um, in terms of leading people.
0: That makes all the sense in the world to me. So now that you have the reins, what? Uh, where would you say from all the previous captains you either captained under or played for you know, kind of where are you pulling what from to come up with your own style? And then eventually I want to kind of talk to you about what happens when you get to Glen Eagles? How are you saying, here's my golf, Here's my team. And here's how I'm setting up this golf course. And here's how uh, my Ryder Cup's going to go. Maybe that may be too many questions there, but I'm wondering if you can kind of build into what your uh, philosophy basically was as a captain and how you went about setting up the golf course.
1: So um, my philosophy as a captain was very much um, uh, along the lines of Sam Torrance. It was about communication. It was about relationships. It was about managing all the relationships. I mean, I didn't have 12 guys that I knew really, really well. I knew a lot of them well um, and some were easy to manage um, and some are more difficult. You know, Victor Dubasson had made the team who, you know, all the French guys in tour were telling me he was kicked off the French team when he was an amateur kicked out kicked out of the federation he'd wear the wrong clothes he wouldn't be told what to do he won't turn up for team meetings and all of those and you know that was highlighted as a red flag to me so i made it really made it my business i put a lot of effort into managing him and, and i did that by getting to know him as a person i remember going out to malaysia for a week where he was playing and spending a week with him having dinner with him at night and trying to break down his barrier that he had as a human and, and tried to get me into it he's very untrustworthy of people and and you know try to get him in there I took him down to Monaco we had a bottle of wine on a on a a friend of mine who's a Formula 1 team I knew he loved Formula 1 got him into that environment got him in a nice kind of you know kind of managed him and slowly brought him into the team and then got Graham McDowell to play a part as a senior guy he needed a senior guy then I had to talk And to Joel Graham into playing that role, Uh, Graham wanted to play a bigger role. He wanted to be one of the stars of the team and play in all five games. And I said, no, Graham, I mean, this is the plan. At that stage, I was formulating a plan of who was going to play what, just like Sam did to me in the back of that BMW on the way down with a bottle of champagne. He had a plan and I was going to have a plan. And, And, you know, I was starting to formulate the plan pre that Ryder Cup. Um, of who was going to play with who and, and, and then it was a question of when the Ryder Cup came was going to roll out that plan it wasn't making it up as I went it wasn't making it up two days before this was going to be made up well in advance based on statistics based on, on, on the golf course and, um, and, and that was going to be the plan and, and then that, that the, the, um, the communication of that plan to each individual player and not telling them like Sam did what everybody else is doing so for example you know rory wasn't aware of of who else was doing what in the team except who he would be playing with and whose potential partners were and how many matches you would play that's all he needed to know whereas and victor the same you know if you're going to be playing two matches you're going to be playing with graham in the foursomes the first two days and then you're going to play the singles you're going to be playing three matches you know and then with graham um i had a little bit of the yin and the yang so trying to get graham convinced to play this role of only playing three out of five matches was a naughty thing you know Graham like all players has got an ego and he wanted to play five and he's you know coming off you know not long after being the US Open champion and a big star and, and, and you know and and had been the absolute hero in 2010 and really wanted to play that that big role that lead role and um I had a little bit of a, a smaller role for him to play, but a very important one in terms of looking after one of the rookies playing those two matches in a difficult format that is foursomes. Um, and I had to try and convince him that this was the right thing to do. So I did it uh, in by talking to him on a humane level and also on a common sense level. Uh, and, I, and I set him down based on what I knew with statistics and what I trawled out. Um, And I said, look, the real key to unlocking this golf course, based on on the stats that I've gathered over the last 10 years of the Johnny Walker Round Glen Eagles golf course, Graham, is the fact that the real key is unlocking the par fives. There's four par fives in this golf course, as well as a drivable par four. Now, they're all big par fives. And uh, what I really want to do is I want to have the bigger hitter driving on these holes. Four out of those five holes are even numbers, Graham. I really need. You're not one of the bigger hitters. I need to put you with a big hitter, and I need to, you to, to look after a guy who's, who's who needs somebody senior and mature on the team, and there's nobody better than you to play that role. And then I took out the yardage map and I showed him. You know, your average drive down the second, Graham, is is you know he can't get home into. Whereas if he drives, you're able to get home into. And then slowly went around the golf course that way. When it comes to 14, he can drive the, gray, the, the green, Graham, because it's an even number. It'll be his driving hole. Whereas you know if you you're driving on that hole you're going to have to lay it up and so my, my forces partnerships were yin and yang I had a big hitter and a shorter hitter uh, in each partnership in order to attack the par fives with the bigger hitter driving on the um, on the even numbers so then if he, if he played all that role for him I then gave him the cherry of I'd say look Graham if you do this for me I'll put you out number one in the singles uh, in, in two weeks time I'll, I'll put you out leading out the team in singles you know now I'm playing to his ego I'm playing to you know a role that he really wanted to play and he's like really what will Rory say about that and And I said, said, I've cleared it with Rory. Rory's good with with all of this. We're going to put Rory out number three because putting out number one is a lot of expectation on his shoulders. I know the last two European captains have put him out at number one, but that hasn't worked out too well. He's lost both of his games. You know, I personally wouldn't be putting out the best player at number one because they've got nowhere to go at number one. They're expected to win. There's a huge amount of expectation on their shoulders. And that was my, my, my I said to Graham, I said, my good instinct is the best number ones are the street fighters, the guys with the biggest heart. That's the guy you put out at number one, Graham, and you're the guy with the biggest heart in this team. So, you know, it, it was all about managing that kind of, just an example of the communication that I had with Graham. And so he went away, then he played his two games with... Uh, with, with Victor, they won both of their games and Graham was terrific. And then he went out number one in the singles and, and won in the singles. And and you know, the other the other point I made to him about playing the singles, Graham, is look, Graham, if you play this role in the first two days of only playing one match, you're gonna have an advantage in the singles. And the advantage will be America are gonna do one of two things. They've historically always done one of two things. They'll either put out their best player number one, or they'll put out the player who's playing the best that week. Either way, Graham, they'll have played 72 holes in the first two days. You only have played 36. You're going to be fresher going out against whoever you're playing against. It doesn't matter who it is. And that's ultimately what happened. You know, he, he went out against Jordan Spieth, who was their best player. And uh, and Jordan tired. I mean, Jordan got three up at one stage early on Graham, but, but faded then as, as Graham went on to win two and one. So all those conversations were had two weeks in advance of the Ryder Cup. Graham knew well in advance of the Ryder Cup exactly what role he would play. And that's ultimately what happened.
0: This is this is clearing up so much for me. So much confusion as to why you guys win so much and how everything works. Like it, that is that's just that's just what managing one guy right there. I mean, that's not even can you can you get that's uh, one guy, yeah. Is, that's that's the lead example. Maybe you go to or any other examples of how you uh, how you went about managing other pairings or anything like that. Because that was some of the most insightful stuff I can ever remember hearing on this podcast.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I get it wrong as well. You know, it's, it's as I say, you know, it's not a perfect science and, and I got it wrong the first day. I'll give you an example of getting it wrong. There's a couple of regrets I have about the Ryder Cup captains. You know, one of them is that, you know, you don't captain everybody the same level that, you know, Captain Graham obviously really well and crafted Victor very well and, and Rory very well. They, they all played great. Justin Rose, uh, Henrik, you know, they're all stars of the team. Um, but some guys you don't captain as well. And one of them was, was Ian Poulter. Um, and, and I felt I let him down. You know, Pult was one of the guys that really stood up for me to be captain. Came out very vocally and 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 in terms of, of me being the captain and 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 um, and, and I, it was almost to the point that he was so strong, and I also felt he was versatile that I I kind of not neglected him, but I kind of I didn't put as much energy into managing him as I should have done. Um, and the other guy I did that to was 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 Stephen. G- Uh, Gallagher, uh, who ended up being the next man in if there was one more pick if there was one more qualifier it was him he just missed out by one shot uh, in the last qualifying event David Howell had shot 62 and jumped him into um, second place and if he had been second on his own he would have qualified for the team and he was Scottish he lived up the road and he'd won around Glen Eagles Um, um, so I ended up picking him but I made the mistake there Chris of I didn't think that Stevie had that performance in him in the last qualifying event in Italy. He had his chances over in the US PGA, over in the World Series that were on the weeks before. He hadn't taken them. He had a number of opportunities to get points on the board and, and confirm a spot in the team. Hadn't taken them. I thought he was he saw the finishing line and he was slowing up coming to the finishing line rather than accelerating. So I picked him. Don't regret not picking him. Absolutely not. As I say, he just missed out on the team. That performance was tremendous in in, in, the, in the last qualifying event. So moving on to the ride of COP. Because I'd taken off my eye off the ball with him, I hadn't didn't think he was going to make the team. I hadn't put in the spade work with him that I did with Victor, and hadn't prepared him to play with a partner. And then I came up with the idea that kind of the last minute, and kind of the week before, what am I going to do with Stevie Geller? And normally you don't want to play your rookies in the first morning. You know, we, we were playing the first morning with four balls. And um, the reason why I went four balls is that. We've always done that when we'd won. We'd always gone with four balls first. Ultimately, you don't want to play your rookies in the morning. Now, Stephen Gallard is not a four is is a four ball player much more so than a foursomes player. So I felt like I had to put him out the first morning because I wanted to play all twelve players the first day. They'd all made the team, and I wanted to show confidence. One to twelve, bomb out, you go, guys. We're not going to win this Ryder Cup with eight or nine players. We're going to win it with twelve. That was a very important message I wanted to get across. Woozy did that in, in two thousand and six. He said that in the meeting, and and I certainly, as a player who was six to twelve in the team, was very happy when I knew I was going to be playing the first day. And it really, he managed me well, and he built me up, and I think it's an important thing to do as a captain. So I wanted to put him out in the first morning, but I had to put him out in the four ball, and I had to put him out in the first series of matches. So it's taking a bit of a chance because you want, you don't want to get away to a bad start. and You know, you want to be putting your experienced players out in the first morning. So I came up with a great idea then that, you know, Stevie's Scottish. He's won on this golf course. He lives a couple of miles down the road. We're playing in Scotland. There's going to be a huge crowd around that first. They're all going to be watching the Scott. Um, you know, Steve is going to have an unbelievable energy in his, in, in, in his game. And the best guy on our team who's going to feed off that energy is Ian Poulter. I, I, I talked Ian into doing that role. And I talked him into playing with Stephen Gallagher. Ultimately, they, they they just never ignited and they got beaten. They got beaten heavily. And I wasn't prepared enough with either player for that. And, and you know, one of the things that I got wrong. In terms of all the other pairings, listen, if we had more time, I could give you through every single pairing as to why I came up with it and, and for what reason it was. But... Uh, not not all of them work out you know it's an imperfect science being the captain
0: well that can be part two of the podcast and that we will definitely do again but before i'd let you go <laughs> i do i do want to at least get a a question in about uh, your work with sky and uh, we've, we've made it no secret we're not exactly fans of how golf is produced in the U.S., and uh, I've always loved how, how they do it in Sky. When I lived in Europe, I got to watch their telecasts and it was fantastic. But is the difference obvious to you? I don't know how much uh, you know, of the U.S. golf you get to watch, but I do know there are events where you guys just get a feed from one of the U.S. networks. And what's that like? How does it make your job easier or harder? And kind of uh, wondering how you c- could compare and contrast the two.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to be critical of anybody else's work. uh, But one of the things that's hurt me as an analyst with Sky, Chris, is my relationship with the players. Um, Because one of the things I promised myself I was going to do it is I would never say something I didn't believe. And I was going to be absolutely honest in in what my appraisal was. Um, And sometimes you've got to say something about players that you know, you know, they're not going to like, but you've got to highlight something with them. You know, I mean, Rory is a prime example. I'm always asked about Rory, with Irish connection and Ryder Cup connection and all of that. And, you know, Rory's a friend and I was at his wedding and, you know, and, and you know, he Rory really stood up for me when I was going to be Ryder Cup captain. And you know, there's a lot of history with Rory McIlroy. But at the same time, I've got to give a balanced view and, and I've got to give an insight, you know, and, you know, US Open, um, I don't fancy Rory McIlroy, um, you know, to win around a really tight golf course because he's never, he's never performed well on a really difficult golf course. You know, he's won 28 times on tour and um, all with a winning score of minus 12 or better. I know he's won by, a you know, a number of shots on occasion, but still, you know, the tournaments that he did win um, by a number of shots, you know, there was 20 odd guys under par. So it wasn't really, you know, when he won a congressional, you couldn't call out a really difficult US Open golf course. Um, so, Having to give that insight, you know, affects my relationship with Rory because I, I know that he's upset that I don't kind of uh, have his back and I'm not kind of cheerleading for him. So that's the consequence of of being in the media. It's not something I, you know, that I, I relish doing or enjoy doing, but I've got to give that that balanced view. You know as i say i don't want to be critical of what other players other ex players do and other people do on other shows but you know there, there there's not a lot of balanced views there's a there's a lot of cheerleading and there's a lot of positivity uh, around everything and, and golf as we all know is not a game that you can be incredibly positive all the time about and and particularly about players and you can't just put it down to having a bad day sometimes there's an insight there you've got to give that's what i try to do but you know as a whole i mean there's there's some great analysts uh, in america as well too but there's a very different vibe you know it's a it's a much more positive vibe the american coverage and a lot of people like that it's a lot more positive and a lot more upbeat and a lot more, you know, they show a lot. The shots come thick and fast, and they're constantly giving the upside of the positivity. But I think that's Americans by nature. You know, you're a very, very positive nation uh, in in general. You know, we're 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 <laughs> certainly in the UK and Ireland, we're more convergentry than than you would be in America, and. and um, I guess maybe that comes true in the, in the
0: coverage. Yeah. I, 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 I prefer the curmudgeonry. That's, that's what I like. It's a lot more real in my book, but uh, (laughs) I I took you a lot for longer than I said I would, but it was absolutely brilliant stuff. And we really appreciate you. uh, You spend the time with us, Paul and, Sharing your insights. I'm sure the listeners are going to love listening to this, and we'll have to do it again sometime. So, thank you.
1: Our oh, pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me on, and hope I didn't give away too many European secrets.
0: <laughs> I'm going to have to go back. I might have to send these around to some of the uh, American players to see if they can uh, implement some of these things. But uh, no, I think you're probably safe. <laughs> Thanks, though, and we'll do it again. Cheers. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! yes! that's better
1: than most how about him that is better than most
0: better than most <laughs> expect